0: But tonight we're going to be uh, continuing our study through 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be talking about how to have the greatest impact on the world around us. You know, if I asked you the question as a believer, what do you think the best way to impact the world for Christ would be? Some might go, More tracks right? Pass out more tracks. That'll have a huge impact on the world, and surely that would, right? If, if every believer simply passed out one track a week, and that just kept going and kept going, we would reach, I mean, thousands, millions of people throughout the year, and so um, take that as a challenge, right? Grab one track and pass it out this week, right? Some might go, well, more crusades, more outreaches, more harvest crusades, more Billy Graham uh, type crusades. You know, that obviously would reach a whole lot of people, and sure, those are effective. People get saved at those types of things, and they're 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 uh, they're great, you know. But some people might go, well, you know, be less offensive in preaching. I'm like what? You know, that's not how you reach more people for Christ. Make church less churchy. You know, and there's churches around the world that do that, right? They try to water down the gospel to the point where you could barely recognize that it's the gospel. They want to make everything so uh, secularly slick and fun and produced that they miss the point, you know? And I mean, I'm one. I love production, right? I I don't have any issue and any problem with, with worship experiences, having, you know, cool stage setups and lights and all this stuff, as long as it adds to the worship experience and doesn't take away. But some places say, you know, let's push the gospel, let's push truth, let's push doctrine out of the way and make it all about the show. And no, that's not effective at all. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I think that's the most effective way. I think that is the most effective way. In the two verses we're looking at tonight, Peter really touches on this in in showing us and teaching us, encouraging us how to have the greatest impact on the world for Christ. And if you remember who Peter's writing to, he's writing this letter to scattered Christians who are kind of scattered all over the area of what is modern day Turkey. They're scattered, they're suffering, they're being persecuted. You know, in uh, chapter one, verse six, he said that they're facing many trials. In verse 7, he says that their faith is being tested by fire. And so, you imagine this, this young group of believers that, that are reading this letter for the first time. They're, they're feeling the pressure of the unbelieving world around them. They're feeling the pressure of the world around them that rejects Jesus as Messiah. And Peter knows that they need encouragement. They need incentive to let their light individually shine brightly. And really through that, to let the unbelieving world around them know the validity of their faith and again I think the most impactful way the most effective way that we can impact the world around us is to live our own lives well for Jesus Christ more than tracks more than Crusades more than big church programs and stuff it's when Christians live as Christians without compromise without watering things down, that the greatest impact, I believe, is made on the world. You know, and that's why it's part of uh, the mission statement here at Hosanna. You know, to know the truth, to live the truth, and to share the truth. You know, so much of us sharing what we believe with people and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ comes from the witness of our lives. And unfortunately, so much damage has been done to the cause of Christ over the centuries and over the years by believers who simply live compromised lives while trying to tell people about Jesus Christ. And that has led to, you know, things over the years where you've heard people go, oh, there's so many hypocrites in the church. There's so many of this in the church. I don't believe in your God because you did this or that to me. You know, and it's important. It's important for us to individually let our light shine so that we have the greatest impact on the world around us for Jesus. And so tonight I want to look at four principles in these verses that will... Help us. If we apply these things, it will help us have the great impact that I believe God has for us um, or wants to work through us into the world that we live in. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you, Lord, so much for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing in our world. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we thank you, God, that as your children, Lord, you work in and through us, Lord. You work healing in and through us when we're sick, Lord, you work power in and through us when we're stepping out in faith to do what you're calling us to do, Lord. And God, we just ask tonight, Lord, you would continue to encourage us, Lord. God, as your people, as your church, as your children, we want to have an effect on this world. We want to have an impact on this world for you, Jesus. And so, Lord, although we have tools in our toolbox and there's things like tracks and events and crusades and, and, and all of those wonderful things that are part of the process, Lord, may we not neglect The most important tool that we have, and that's our own lives, lived well, lived godly, lived in a a purity of spirit, Lord, seeking you, seeking to represent you rightly. And so God, speak to us tonight, encourage us tonight, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, verse 11, it says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. The first principle I want to point out here that really will help us have a great impact on the world around us is to know who you are. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to embrace that. We need to cling to that. We need to realize and embrace our identity. He uses three words here to kind of hone in and, uh, and to really nail down that concept. He uses this phrase, dear friends. He uses the word strangers, and he uses the word exiles. Now, that word, dear friends, in other translations is translated beloved, right? It's a word that you might be familiar with in, in uh, Scripture. It's one of the favorite descriptors of Peter. He uses it over eight different times in First and Second Peter. Now, the CSB renders that word, beloved, dear friends, because that's the idea that this word, beloved, carries, that you are deeply cherished, that you are deeply... Um, loved right that's really what beloved means and as Peter is writing this to his uh, readers here he wants his readers to know something very important God loves you God loves you if you're his child he's adopted you into his family he loves you dearly he loves you dearly and it's like 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 Peter's you know putting his hand on the shoulder of those he's talking to and making direct eye-to-eye contact. And he's like, look, before I tell you what I'm going to tell you, before I'm going to give you the encouragement that I want to give you, I want you to know that you are loved by God deeply, incredibly. I just had a phone conversation with somebody the other day that's just struggling with life and struggling with different issues and lost a job and stuff and was just like, you know, I think God's mad at me. Because, you know, I, I made a mistake and I did this and all that, and I just was caught in the moment of going, "Stop, Stop right there. God loves you." Like, yeah, you may have made a mistake and you said something wrong and, this, but, but, but stop for a second and think about this. God himself came to this earth, clothed himself in humanity lived a perfect life, died the most horrible, excruciating death on the cross so that you could be forgiven of all your sins forever. And you're going to think he's mad at you and just punishing your life and and just, you know, going to throw lightning bolts down on you because he's upset. That's exactly the opposite of what God, how God feels about his kids. He loves us. And so as Peter's about to get into this, this, this urging as he gives on them, he's like, look, the incentive to, to do what God calls you to do is because he loves you and you love him. Never forget that. That is the basis of our relationship with God, love, right? And so he says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers. That word strangers there means sojourners. The word simply means a person who lives in a place that isn't their home. And we can't ever forget that this world is not our home as believers. This isn't our final dwelling place. We are sojourners, right? And another translation or an, another um, uh, Greek um, dictionary, it says that that word that's translated strangers literally means to be alongside the house. Alongside the house. And so what Peter is saying is, look, not only are you beloved by God, not only does he love you dearly, not only does he just, you know, (laughs) loves you so much, but you also live alongside of those who call this world home. This isn't your home, but you live alongside them. You dwell with them. And then he uses that word exiles, which is also translated pilgrims. And that word simply means a traveler or a visitor or someone who stops somewhere temporarily, right? So he's like, look, you're loved by God, but you're not a local here. You're not a local in this world. This world isn't your home. You're just passing through. You don't belong here. Right? Jesus put it this way. You are in this world, but not of this world. And so don't put all of your eggs into this basket. Don't don't invest all of your time and effort into what is temporary, what is passing away in this world, because it doesn't make any sense. You know, if you look at this entire life as believers as a weekend trip, and we're going back home to heaven someday, you know, it helps put things into perspective. You know, when you go on a weekend trip, you don't pack up every single thing you own. Every single, well, some of you take every article of clothing, but, you know, the point is, is you're not supposed to, you know, gather up every possession. You're, you're not moving permanently. It's not like if you're going to move from a house to a new house or an apartment to a new apartment. It's not like that. It's like you're on a trip. And so you have what you need to get through the trip, but don't think of it as your final resting place, your final dwelling place. We have to know who we are. We have to realize our identity. Because when we do realize our identity and when we embrace those truths, we're going to find ourselves living with proper balance in this life while we're here on earth, all right? We'll find ourselves living with proper balance. You know, have you ever found yourself walking into someone else's home and you immediately start redecorating it in your mind. You're like, oh, I'd knock out that wall and I'd tear down that wall, bit." right? And you start getting caught up dreaming of, you know, if I lived here, I would do this and I would invest here and I would spend money on this. It's like, whoa, 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 wait, it's not your home. Don't get caught up in trying to make that place the best possible place it could be because it's not yours. That's not where you belong. It's the same kind of a concept here when it comes to understanding our identity as Christians. This world is not our home. And to have proper incentive to live and obey God here on this earth, to to have proper balance, we always have to remember that, yes, we are loved by God dearly, but this life is a life that we're just passing through on our way to our real home. The second principle I want to point out there is he says, abstain, right? He goes, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Knowing who you are knowing that you were dearly loved by God, dearly loved by God, knowing that this world is not your home, knowing that you're only passing through this world will help, will help you know what to do when certain temptations come our way. And so he says, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. What Peter is doing here is, before he gets into what we should be doing on the outside, To have a great impact on the world around us for Jesus, He's dealing with the inside. He's beginning with the inside. What we need to know, what we need to embrace, is if we're going to live a godly life on the outside, it begins by living a godly life on the inside. Too many of us get that backwards. Our internal godly life is in shambles, we barely obey God internally. We're doing things we shouldn't be doing. We're looking at things we shouldn't be looking at. We're listening to things we shouldn't be listening to. We're, we're not treating people the way we know we're, we're supposed to be doing that. And so internally, we're, we're barely Christians, if we could even call ourselves yet. But then we go and try and outwardly be godly people when we're standing in front of others or trying to maybe, you know, oh, I got to share my faith with somebody. And it doesn't work. People see right through that type of hypocrisy. So here you are just passing through this world, this world that isn't your home, and Peter is saying, look, you got to say no to the things of this fallen world. Say no. Say no to your fallen nature and the things that it wants you to do. It's a basic one, but so many of us struggle with it. He says, abstain. Abstain. That means to hold it at arm's length, to don't don't let it come into your life. Now, it's no surprise that in this world we will be bombarded with desires to do sinful things, right? It's no desire. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is driven by its own pleasures, seeking its own wants. We live in a world that says, me first. We live in a world that says, you know what? I got to take care of number one, and then everybody else comes after. We live in a world that says, I need to win. I need to get what, what, what I deserve. I need to get what's right for me. And the reason we struggle with these temptations and these desires to do sinful things is because as a Christian, our soul is saved. Our soul has been saved by God, but we still live with our fallen nature. It's still a part of us, right? The Bible talks about this at length. And that fallen nature that we live with constantly wants to do whatever is the most self-gratifying, pleasing thing it can. Constantly. And it wants to do the most self-gratifying, pleasing things that it can at the expense and the detriment of anybody else outside of it. That's the fallen nature that that we live with. That's what we wrestle against all the time. You know, and temptation comes to everyone. The Bible says that we aren't tempted by any temptation but that which is common to man. We know it's going to happen, and so it's a war that constantly rages, It's a war that we're constantly fighting. And so we constantly have to remind ourselves, look, that's not who I am. I'm God's child. God loves me. God has empowered me. God has equipped me. And he's called me to say no to the things of the world so that I can have an impact on the world for Christ. Galatians chapter five, verse 17 says, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. That's a reality that we live in here. And so when he says it's these sinful desires, he's talking about fleshly lusts. It's everything from, from perverted sexual desires to, to, to greed to, to you know, lying and cheating and stealing. It, it's all of this stuff that is about me first and self-gratification. And he says these things wage war against our soul. That word war there means more than a single battle or a single skirmish. That word war there means to carry out a long-term military campaign. And if you think about it contextually, when the letter was written, this is exactly how the Roman armies conducted warfare. They would conduct these long, drawn-out military campaigns. What the Roman armies would often do is if there was a city that they wanted to conquer, they would show up to the city, they would build their own settlement, their own city around that city, and just wait. And wait. And they would wait weeks, they would wait months, sometimes they would wait years to conquer the city within because they just wanted to say that we're we're here for the long haul. We're not going to, you know... Throw our forces at the gates one time and go, oh, well, it's it's too difficult. We're going to leave. No, they just kept, kept sieging. And so these sinful desires, these fleshly lusts, or all those self gratifying lusts that the world presents to us, that end up producing wrong desires within us. And they're like an army of terrorists that are camped around us, working to subdue and enslave us. And it never stops. (laughs) It never stops. And that's why we have to consciously and regularly and, and moment by moment go, no, I'm going to abstain from the things that are fleshly lust, abstain from the things that are worldly desires. Now, Galatians 5 gives us a good list of what these desires are. Right? In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Now the phrase anything similar is interesting there because what that means, I'm going to put it in modern English terms, and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera, (laughs) right? What he's saying here is that this list of these fleshly desires, these things that are contrary to Christ, that are anti-God's character, it's really an endless list. It's an endless list. Every second we turn our eyes to and fro, there's something that is contrary to God that that is tempting us to give in, to do it this way instead of God's way, to act this way instead of God's way. To indulge in something that is not good for us, something that is ultimately harmful for us. It might be a temporary pleasure, but is ultimately going to destroy our relationships or destroy our, our marriages or destroy our, 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 our relationship with our kids or mess up uh, our businesses or workplace, whatever it may be. But there's an endless list of things. And so what's the solution? How do we abstain from these things? Well, in Galatians 5.16, it says this. I say then walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So what's the opposite of that? If you don't walk by the spirit, you will find yourself carrying out the desire of your flesh. It's it's pretty simple profoundly difficult, right? Man, if it was just easy to walk by the Spirit, then <laughs> you walk by the Spirit. You know, living, walking by the Spirit is, is being in a, in a place of constant yielding to the Spirit, in, in constant communication with God, and constant giving yourself over to Him and saying, God, guide me. God, direct me. You know, in every moment of every, every decision of saying, what would God want me to do? How would God want me to react in this? What, what is the behavior He wants me to exude here? You know, nope, He wouldn't want me looking at that. I'm not going to think about it while I'm looking at it. I'm going to say, no, He wouldn't want me doing that. I'm not going to do that. This is what walking in the Spirit is all about, and it says you will not carry out the desire of your flesh. If you live a Spirit-led life, this is a life in regular prayer. This is a life in regular reading and study of God's Word. This is a life in regular worship and service to God. If you live this Spirit-led life, you will have the power to abstain from sinful desires. And when we abstain from sinful desires... When we hold these things away from us, when we don't let them into our lives, we end up living lives that have a great witness and an amazing impact on the world around us for Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with John Bunyan. He's the author of Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read that, go read it, it's great. But he also wrote a book called The Holy War. And in this book, he wrote, he envisioned our lives as Christians as fortresses with walls and gates. And in this book of of describing our lives like a holy war and our lives being a fortress with walls and gates, he talked about that these different gates are the points of ingress and egress into our lives. And he talked about we have an eye gate, we have an ear gate, right? And he talked about how we let things into our mind, we let things into our thinking. By what we see and by what we hear, even by things that we can touch or smell. And without going into his whole book, The Holy War, get it too, read it, it's great. All right? He basically said that the solution is that when the enemy comes, when the temptation comes into our lives, when those sinful desires and worldly lusts present themselves, here's what you do. Close the gate. Profound, right? Profound. Close the gate. If your eye gate is wide open and stuff is entering in through your eyes that is causing you to lust and to think inappropriate things, close the gate. If you're hearing things that are causing you to think certain ways that are that are ungodly and unchristlike, close the gate. It, it, it's just ridiculous when we leave the gate open. You imagine this fortress, right? And the enemy's coming. And imagine a guy standing next to the open gate as the enemy is just charging into the fortress. And he's like, "Well, man, how's the enemy getting in here? This doesn't make any sense. I mean, they're just they're just wreaking havoc all over the fortress. Yeah. You know, oh, so excuse me. Yeah. I mean, what's going on? I don't understand. You know. Oh, is it? Oh, you need me to help you open it up further? Okay. Yeah. You know, but that's how we live our lives sometimes. then we're shocked that we fall to the enemy. We're shocked that we fall to temptation. And we're the ones holding the gates wide open. Paul Bunyan was like, close the gate. Don't let the enemy in. Why? Because we're in a war for our very souls. A war for our very souls. You know, you ever seen the image, images of soldiers, you know, like in Afghanistan or or somewhere and it's like 110, 115, 120 degree weather and they're wearing like hundreds of pounds of gear and plates and backpacks and helmets and all this stuff and you're like, what are you doing? Why are you dressed like that in 120 degree weather? Well, the reason they're dressed that way is because they know they're in a battle zone. A mortar could drop in unannounced at any time. And they don't know when it's going to happen. And so it doesn't matter how hot it is. They are armored up. They are ready. They know they're in a battle. And they're ready for the fight at all times. And it's the same for us believers. We are in a war zone. This life is a war zone. For our souls. For the souls of people around us. And those of us that call ourselves Christians. We are called to be on the front lines of this battle. Fighting for the souls of those who don't yet know Jesus. And one of the ways we have the greatest impact in this world is to abstain from sinful desires, to keep the enemy out of our own lives by making sure that we put on the whole armor of God, making sure that we cling to the Spirit daily with our disciplines every single day because if we don't, we simply get weak. And so we realize who we are, that we're dearly loved by God, We abstain from the impulses and the temptations by living a spirit-led life. And this is all inward stuff so far, right? This is all the, the inward stuff. And now when we get to verse 12, Peter switches to now the outward stuff. The third principle to have the greatest impact on this world for Jesus is to let the inward godliness be lived on the outside, all right? To be lived on the outside. Look at verse 12. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Hopefully, it is not a surprise to anybody hearing this message tonight that unbelievers study us. They watch us. They observe and analyze us. They watch how we talk. They watch how we interact. They watch how we represent the God that we claim to serve. And one of the reasons they do that is so that they can have reason to accuse us and deny Christ. One of their favorite reasons to say God isn't real is because Christians aren't perfect. One of their favorite reasons to say I hate God and I hate you and you're false and you're all this stuff is because you're not perfect. And they watch and they just wait, and they, they, they want to see if we'll, we'll, we'll fail, if we'll fall, and they love it when we do. They love it when we do. And it says there, because they're looking for reasons to slander us as evildoers. To slander us as evildoers. Now, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. Over the last couple of weeks, I had someone accuse me of being a pastor who would take women and sell them into prostitution. I was like, where did that come from? Where on earth did that come from? And they're blaming me. They're saying, I now know I can hate God because of you. Why? Because I told them they can't blaspheme God on our YouTube channel. So because you can't blaspheme God on our YouTube channel, I sell women into prostitution. Right? Slanderous. Slanderous language. Hurtful for sure, hurtful, but I'm not surprised. The world did it to Jesus, right? The world accused Jesus of being a drunk, being a glutton, being a political dissident, being a tax fraud, being an illegitimate child, all false uh, accusations. They did it to Paul, right? The accusation against Paul was he's trying to stir up riots all over the world, They did it with the early church. You know, one of the big accusations against the early church during the early church is that Christians were cannibals. And there were stories that would get passed around about how at Christian feasts and stuff, when they would gather together, they were actually eating children. How about you show up and you'll notice nobody's eating children, right? But some of this came from the stories of the Lord's Supper where Jesus said, take broke the bread, eat, this is my body, drink this cup, this is my blood. And so they said, they're cannibals, they're cannibals. That's what Christianity is all about. Other stories I found in the early church is that they were accused, the early church was accused of being a nest of incest because Christians referred to each other as brothers and sister. So y'all must be sleeping together, right? It's like the world wants to come to these most horrific, gruesome, disgusting slanderous things of evil doing because they want to grab onto anything they can to say, nope, I don't have to listen to God. And so here we are, citizens of heaven, living alongside people who are citizens of this earth. We're called to live differently than they do. We're called to be different than they are. But when we do that, they don't like it. And they'll accuse us of everything imaginable. And what Peter is saying here in verse 12, he's like, look, live such a godly life. Live such an honorable life. Live such a noble life that none of their accusations can stick. Live such a life where when they come out you come at you and say, Oh, you're you're this horrible person, you do these horrible things, and they just slander you with the most vile, disgusting accusations. When they take two seconds to observe your life, anybody would go, none of that's true. None of that's true. Live life with such inward purity that, that flows into outward quality that when someone observes your life, the accusations just don't add up. That's what Peter is saying here. And Peter's going to go on to tell us how to do that in very, some, some very specific ways, not, not in tonight's study, but in verse 13, he's going to get into how to do that in submitting to the government, right? That's going to be a fun study. Um, verse 18, he's going to talk about how to do it in submitting to your employers. Oh, that's another fun one, right? Um, Chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to get into how to do that in submitting to your spouse, specifically the context of wives submitting to your husbands, but it's in the context of of the marriage relationship. And those are just three very specific examples Peter's going to give us on, on how to have the greatest impact on our world for Jesus and how we live our lives daily, how we live these godly, gracious lives. But suffice it to say, Christians, we're all on a stage. The lights are on. The bright spotlight of the unbelievers is on us. They are watching. They are waiting. And really the question to ask ourselves is, what do they see when they watch us? What do they see? Christians should be honorable, honest, trustworthy, reliable people in their community. Christians should be known for doing honest business. Christians should be known for patience. It doesn't mean that we're doormats to get walked on and to just, you know, stand there and get abused by people verbally or physically, but Christians should be known for graciousness, extending forgiveness and mercy. To say, yeah, look, I may not want to hang out with you, but, but but I still love you. You know, I'm not writing you off. I'm not condemning you to hell. Christians should be known as people who don't cheat, who don't steal. And sadly, in many cases, the opposite of all of that is true. But Peter says, look, you want to have the greatest impact on the world around you for Jesus? Live such good lives that the accusations of the unbelievers can't stick. It's Peter's plea for integrity in the church. One person said, never trust a doctor whose houseplants have died. but what about trusting a Christian whose life doesn't reflect the very things they say they believe, right? And sometimes we go out there and we're the ones that are living contrary to the faith we preach and then we wonder why nobody wants to take anything we have to say seriously. That leads me to the fourth principle here. Fourth principle to have the greatest impact in the world around us is to remember your intention. Remember the goal. You see, Peter closed verse twelve by essentially saying, "Look, all of this is to achieve the ultimate goal—that unbelievers will glorify God on the day He visits." That's how he closes verse twelve. Now, that's an interesting phraser because you go, "On the day He visits, what does that mean, right?" You know, is 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 God like you know, hey? Grandpa's coming over this weekend, right? Is that that what he's talking about? You know, the day he visits? Well, the day he visits, or other translations say the day of visitation, it's an actual um, Old Testament phrase. And Peter, he's Jewish. Peter was very uh, uh, well-versed in the Old Testament, so he understood what he was writing here. And it's a phrase that was used to describe when God would, would visit the earth with blessing or with judgment. So this day he visits or the day of visitation, you, you see this in the Old Testament in um, describing when God would show up either with blessing or with judgment. One of the examples is in the book of Ruth. Um, the very beginning of the book of Ruth, you have the story of Naomi and Elimelech. They had left Bethlehem because there was a a drought and there was famine in the land and they went over to Moab. And as they were over in Moab, eventually um, Naomi's husband and her children died and she decided to return back to Bethlehem. But in the uh, verses there in the beginning of Ruth, it says the reason that she decided I'm going to go back to Bethlehem is it says, quote, the Lord has visited his people in giving them bread. So there's this phrase of the Lord visiting his people and that was an example of God visiting them and showing up with blessing. Um, in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 3, you have a prophecy there where God is angry at his, uh, the leaders of his people for, for leading the people into, into sin and stuff. And it says, the Lord of hosts will visit his flock with judgment. And so this concept, that's just two examples. There's a bunch of them in the Old Testament of, of the day of visitation or the day God visits. And so when God um, shows up in, in in a person's life, in our world or in our life, uh, shows up either to bring blessing or shows up either to bring judgment. It's spoken of as a visitation, right? That's this phrase day of visitation. And so Peter here is saying, look, on the day of God's visitation, the unbelievers will glorify him. Now I personally think Peter, in specific context here, is talking about the second coming of Christ. Um, the day when Jesus is going to, you know, return to the earth and visit a second time. And when that day comes, it's going to be a day of good news, blessing for some people, and it's going to be a day of bad news um, and, and judgment and wrath for others. But the question is this. How can a person who's observing the good works of a Christian glorify God on the day he visits? How does that, how does that work? Because that's what he's telling us here. He's like, look, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, So that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Well, for one, the unbelievers that are observing our lives, that are slandering us as evildoers. But while they're doing that, they're observing our good works. They're observing us abstain from fleshly desires. They're observing us abstain from these sinful desires, these things that the world says, do that and pleasure yourself and, and go all in that. But they're watching us go, No, I'm not gonna do that, and I'm not gonna cheat, and I'm not gonna steal, and I'm not gonna, you know, do things the way the way the world wants me to do it. As they're watching how we live as we've maybe had the opportunity to talk with them and to to share with them. They've heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit has been speaking to them with conviction in their need for salvation. And then there's going to come a time, and this is what's called our witness, there's going to come a time that those unbelievers that have been observing you and watching you and watching you say, I love God and live like it and abstain from those things, they're going to remember your life. They're going to remember your lifestyle. They're going to remember how you lived the truth that you preached. And that will be a part of leading them over to accepting the truth of it all. And there are so many stories of unbelievers that have come to believe in the truth of Scripture because the Christian that was sharing it with them, the Christian that was exampling it to them, the Christian that was preaching it to them, was doing it in in faithfulness wasn't being a compromised Christian, but was, but was living according to what they preached. And that person eventually said, you know what, you believe this with such conviction and watching you live it has helped me come to the place of believing it as well. And in that way, they will glorify God in the day he visits by having received Christ themselves. But what about the one who observes your life, who watches you love God, watches you abstain and says, I still want nothing to do with it. I hate God. Will they glorify God? Oh, yeah. They will absolutely glorify God. You know, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every single defiant person will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king of kings, and they will give glory to God because he is God omnipotent, God almighty. Now, I'd suggest accepting Christ as Lord and Savior now while he's offering grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. I would, I would suggest accepting him as your Savior now voluntarily as his adopted child rather than later under a forced compulsion as his conquered enemy. But either way, by observing our gracious, godly lives that, 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 that's produced from, from our inside convictions, coming from realizing who we are in Christ and how loved we are by God, by saying no to those things that war against our very soul, people will observe all of that. They will observe how we live And that, in my opinion, has the greatest impact in the world for Jesus Christ. Tracks are great. Please pass out tracks. Taking people to Harvest Crusades is awesome. Please do that. You know, posting cute stuff on your social media. Awesome. Do that. But don't forget to let your light shine Because that's what they're watching. That's what they're hanging on with bated breath to see if you really believe what you say you believe. Now, if you're a Christian, you just need to know this. Life is built on character. Life is built on character. And character is built on choice. Decisions. And then we have decisions to make every moment of every day and every choice Every decision we make, big or small, does to our lives what a sculptor's chisel does to a block of marble. It shapes it. Just like a sculptor is shaping marble, the decisions we make are shaping our life and are shaping the effect that our lives have in this world. Every choice we make shapes who we are. And as it shapes who we are, As God's children, it shapes how people watching will view the God that we say we serve. It's a heavy responsibility, but it's one we don't bear on our own. God himself dwells within us to enable us to be the people he's calling us to be, to represent him rightly. And we are all on display, and this is why Peter's exhortation here is so, so important. But if you're not a believer... I realize Christians over the last 2,000 years have uh, rarely been perfect examples. (laughs) I'm well aware of that. Over the last 2,000 years, Christians haven't been perfect examples of godliness. In fact, none of them have. Not a single one of us. And maybe you reject God because Christians have been hypocrites in one way or another. Oh, no, I'm going to reject God. I'm going to reject salvation. I'm going to reject everything that the Bible says about who he is because that Christian was mean to me or that Christian was a hypocrite. You know, and on behalf of all Christians, I apologize. You know, there have been so many times where the church has set the worst example. And so, yeah, I apologize. But that is still no excuse for you. You see, because in the last day, when you're on your own outside of this world, you're not going to be sitting before all the hypocrites to be judged. You're going to be standing before God Almighty. You'll be standing before God alone, not the hypocrites, not the Christians in the churches around you and the Christians that have have been bad examples. You're not going to be standing before them. They're not the ones judging you. It's God Almighty that will judge you. And those hypocrites won't be standing before you to be judged either. Those hypocrites will be standing before the God who forgave them of all of their sin by what Jesus did on the cross for them. And so, when you say there's so many hypocrites in the church, you're right. Then there's room for one more, so come on in. Because last time I checked, Jesus died for sinners, He died for messed up people. He died for the broken. He died for the soiled, the spoiled. He died for sinners. And these two verses we looked at tonight, they speak about the war for the soul. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if they gain the whole world but lose their own soul? If you don't know Jesus tonight, whether you're in this room or watching online, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, tonight is a perfect time. To say yes to him. Tonight is a perfect time to say yes. To say yes to the one who gave it all. So that you, hypocrite and all, could be saved, forgiven, and washed clean. It's your responsibility. You're accountable to God. To come to him. To not come to some Christian. Not come to some church. But to come to God Almighty, to come to his feet, and to let him work in you, and to let him change you the way he's doing in every single Christian in this world. But you need to come just as you are. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to get it all figured out. You don't have to clean up every messed up part of your life. You come to him and he cleans you up. I'm going to pray in a moment, and if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do so. So let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray for those that are hearing this message tonight, God. Lord, they may be sitting there with arms crossed and realizing, you know, I've seen so many Christians, and they're all hypocrites. God, I pray tonight that you've spoken to them, Lord, that they're not going to stand before hypocritical Christians at the end of all things. They're going to stand before you. That God, as they would point their finger at Christians and go, you hypocrites, Lord, that they would know that they're not going to be the ones judging the hypocrites. It's going to be God Almighty judging those hypocrites. And Lord, they're going to be judged by whether or not they received the shed blood of Jesus Christ they're going to be judged by whether or not they have become a child of God through God's loving sacrifice. Yes, Lord, we are called as believers to to abstain. Lord, we are called to know who we are in you as your beloved children. We are called, Lord, to conduct ourselves honorably. And God, when we do that, we have a huge impact on the world around us. But Lord, we thank you so much that it is not all on our shoulders because we are flawed, we are failed, we are messed up people. And so God, as believers, we ask that your spirit would continue to work in through us, Lord, to help us make the right decisions, to help us do the right thing, to say the right thing, to be the right people. Lord, that you would move in and through us to abstain. Lord, to keep the gate closed, to close our eye gate, to close our ear gate when we need to, God, that we would be holy and righteous and pure people. But God, even in all that, when we stumble and when we fall, we thank you, God, so much for your death on the cross. We thank you so much for the grace and the mercy that you've extended to us. But God, for those that are listening to this right now that don't know you and have tried to use messed up Christians as a reason to deny you, God, I pray, Lord, that right now you're speaking to their hearts. That they would realize the truth that when they die, they're gonna stand before you and none other. And the only question is gonna be, did they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or did they not? No other question matters at that point. So, if you want to receive Jesus tonight, I just want you to pray this prayer with me and say, Lord God, I know I've sinned against you. My life has been wounded, my life has hurt, sin has devastated me. I want to be set free, I want to be forgiven, I want to be restored and made whole. I choose to believe you tonight. I choose to believe that you love me. And Lord, I'm not going to let other flawed Christians be the reason that I deny you in your perfect holiness. Save my soul, God. Come into my life and be my Lord and Master, be my Savior. Thank you for loving me so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, guys, we have a call in our lives to every single day, day by day, to reach out to God and say, God, help me do the right thing today. Praise God that when we stumble and fall, he picks us up and dusts us off and says, let's keep moving forward. I'm so grateful for that. let that never be an excuse for us to not try, to not cling to him, to walk in the spirit, that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but we would glorify his name in every way. Amen? God bless you guys. Let's worship.